Welcome to Manage This, the podcast by project managers for project managers. Every two weeks, we get together and discuss what matters to you in the fast-paced and often complicated world of project management. We hear from those in the field who are doing the stuff of project management, meeting challenges head-on, recovering from failures, and enjoying the benefits of success. I'm your host, Nick Walker, and with me are our full-time experts, Andy Crow and Bill Yates. And Andy, once again, we have in the studio someone who was involved in what really was an international crisis and a delicate and drawn-out response. We do, Nick. And the interesting thing about this, we have a lot of project managers that have worked on high-stakes projects. This one is literally life and death. Mm -hmm. And so it redefines my thoughts about what's mission critical. So it's going to be a good cast today. Well, let's meet him. Chuck Casto is the president of the Casto Group with expertise in nuclear safety and regulatory issues. His experience includes 38 years with the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the commercial nuclear power industry, and the U.S. Air Force. For 11 months, Chuck was the director for site operations in Japan during the Fukushima nuclear plant accident. He participated in a mission to help reestablish that country's regulatory body after the accident and helped to establish criteria to restart nuclear plants there that were shut down. In 2012, he received the Distinguished Executive Award from President Obama. Dr. Casto, it is a privilege to have you with us here on Manage This. Good morning, gentlemen. I'm happy to be here. Well, obviously, there is a lot to talk about, and we'd like to spend some time talking not only about the Fukushima accident, the recovery and the lessons learned, but also about taking the lead in crisis situations overall Mm. and how to best respond to different types of disasters, big and small. So I guess we should start off, take us back to 2011, to that devastating earthquake, the subsequent tsunami and the resulting nuclear accident. Well, Nick, on Friday, March 11th, late in the afternoon, in the Sendai area, the eastern coast of Japan, a 9.0 earthquake occurred. The earthquake was so strong, it actually moved the earth on its axis and could be felt as far away as Antarctica. Hmm. It created three to nine large tsunami waves. We, we think of a tsunami wave as a wave like at the beach and you jump through the wave and come out huh. the other side. But here we're talking about the ocean actually lifting in yeah. a tsunami mm. and then moving uh, towards the shoreline. And uh, the tsunami swept in the coast. Between the earthquake and the tsunami, about 16,000, just over 16,000 people were swept away or lost mm. in that initial attack on the coastline. Small villages and towns up and down the Sunda coast were, were washed away. Uh, obviously, the U.S. military responded with the USS Reagan and along with the Japanese military and others. If you think about it, your first responders are lost. You're, yeah. All your fire departments, all your police departments oh, right. along the coast, they're gone. They're, they're swept away. They're lost. Uh, so now you have no first responder. So when you talk about crisis leadership, we always depend on our first responders. Sure. No, uh, Very few first responders remaining in this case. Mm-hmm. So you have to rely on national governments, obviously, in, a, in an episode as big as this. So obviously this was international news. You know, ev- everybody got the word about this. That's right. But, but tell us then about what happened and, and how you really got involved. How did this get on your radar? Well, the, there are several nuclear plants along that eastern coast of the Sendai region 
the one that we're all familiar with is Fukushima Daiichi, which is a six-unit nuclear site that had several of the units operating, several of the units shut down. It was, it was attacked by a 45-foot tsunami wave, mm-hmm. which caused catastrophic damage to the facility. It lost power and lost the vital cooling water that cools the reactors. At that point, because the Japanese were dealing with the tsunami and earthquake, and because the national government uh, really had a little experience in a crisis this big in terms of the reactors, um, Prime Minister Khan called President Obama and asked for help, asked for nuclear expertise. And President Obama called the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and asked for to send a, a team to Japan. And I was chosen as the leader of that team. We initially responded with 16 people. Eventually, in the embassy, between all the government agencies, uh, there were about 150 responders. For me, uh, I was actually in Atlanta. I was working in construction projects, mm-hmm. not in operations. This was an operational event. I was working construction projects. So I couldn't have been further away from, really, from the action. Uh, our headquarters office in Washington was responding. And as they searched the agency for people to lead the effort, my name popped up. Uh, I have experience. I had operated the reactors just like Fukushima Daiichi, and I'd worked on Capitol Hill for a U.S. senator. I worked for the chairman of the NRC. So I had both the political expertise and the technical expertise. So that I think that's the reason they chose me to go to Japan. Chuck, I've got a question for you as I'm as I'm listening to this because you and I got to know each other not too long after that. Right. Uh, we uh, uh, we began our friendship, and uh, as as I'm thinking about this, can you explain to our listeners? What happens when the cooling fluid or the cooling liquid uh, doesn't cool enough, then uh, uh, so what? So it gets warm, right? Yes, and that's mm-hmm. exactly the rea- inside the reactor vessel. Uh, you lose water. It turns to steam. Steam's uh, non-flowing steam's not a very good cooler, and the reactor fuel begins to heat up. It, the metal around the fuel fails, melts. That metal releases hydrogen in part, as part of the process. And that hydrogen builds up inside the building. And as we all saw vividly, the building's then detonated. Mm. So you had uh, four actually explode. At what point did you realize what you were up against? Well, <laughs> it was pretty uh, vivid when the buildings exploded. We realized at that point, okay, that, mm. that means the only way to get that level of an explosion is that you've had significant fuel damage in a reactor. So you knew that... I know I was watching on television, obviously, on Friday, and I typically in this situation you would restore power and you'd restore water, and I kept thinking, okay, soon they'll get power and water. Because you can't see what's going on from 9,000 miles away on television, you really don't know what's happening on the ground mm-hmm. in terms of the response. Um, and it was hoping through the day that they would be getting power back and water back, and then obviously um, when the first building exploded, you realize – that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. I know that some reactors have control rods that are suspended over the fuel, and that if the power fails, uh, they're held up by electromagnets. The electromagnets fail or, or cease working. The rods drop in, and they stop the reaction. What, what happened here? Was this an older plant design? Did something go wrong with that? Because it's interesting to me that we call this an accident, 
and not an act of God or something like that. Where was the accident, Chuck? Well, the the, the control rods in this reactor actually come in from the bottom, and they're inserted by uh, an accumulator that has pressurized water, ah. which did happen. The reaction shut down. But much like a pot of water on a stove, you can shut the, the heat off, mm-hmm. and you have, heat, you have decay heat. Right. You have heat remaining that mm-hmm. you have to dissipate. So if you don't dissipate that heat in that reactor, then mm-hmm. the, the clad around the fuel will fail, and mm-hmm. potentially the fuel failed, depending on how long – it is before you restore water, which took quite some time. So this is Friday that you're watching Friday. this on TV. Right. How quickly are you on a plane headed east? I was dispatched on Monday, uh, and then and then essentially landed. Of course, it's a you have an international dateline, so it's Tuesday mm-hmm. when I was on on the ground. There must have been some sort of safety issues, some some safety safeguards. I, I guess is That's what right. I'm looking at, right. uh, and those failed. All of those were essentially washed away or had no power. Wow. Mm. That, so, that mm. tsunami wave was what – the 45-foot wave was what really was undercut everything. Just massive. It knocked out all the safety systems. All the, all the backup the generators. Powers, all the backup yeah. – ge- the backup generators were actually in the basement of the building. Oh. Uh, obviously not the best design, mm. which was designed back in the 50s and 60s. So the tsunami washed oh. down to the basement where the diesel generators were at. Okay, so Chuck, a lot of times a project gets started through a charter, maybe through a mission statement, maybe through some uh, contractual element. And in this case, it gets started by a phone call from a prime minister to a president saying right. help. Right. And so that's your, that's your charter. That's right. your mission, that's help. Right. Um, you get on a plane, you land in Japan on a Tuesday, so, and you don't know what you're going to encounter. So right. how do you, as a project manager, as a leader of an enormously mission-critical project, how do, you, how do you start defining this? How do, you, how do you begin? Well, there were really two pieces to the charter. The first piece of the charter was to give advice to the Japanese government. The second piece of the charter was to protect the 200,000 American citizens mm-hmm. in Japan and do that by giving advice to the ambassador. So you have basically two missions, so you want to break up your organization to support those two missions. So we immediately dispatch our engineers into the power company, into the regulator, into the military, the Japanese military, and, and you want penetration into those organizations as, as um, deeply as you can get to get as much information. This was, this was like, um, you know, I say it's like trying to solve a murder without access to the crime scene. Mm, right. You, you're blind. You have no data. You have no mm. information. So you're you're trying to piece together information. Much of the information you get is wrong mm. uh, because there is no information. All the instrumentation systems were destroyed. Right. So you really don't have much information at that point. Mm. So um, for me, I spent much of my time as a leader. I had a te- assistant team leader put them on the uh, mission of being penetrating into the organization. I spent much of my early days with the ambassador trying on the protect the American citizen side and uh, trying to manage uh, chaos uh, is the, the biggest thing. You know, the, the, the sort of an inverse relationship, a chaos curve, I call it. The, the less information you have, the more chaos there is. Right. right. So, and then when information comes in, then you tend to just react to it. 
good or bad. You just react to any data point I have, I react to it. It's like a political campaign. It, and, and what, <laughs> yeah, right. So to make a long story short, I think what I learned in that case as a crisis leader was I set goalposts. And this is the best, best worst case. Hmm. There is no good case, right? right so they're right. just worst case. So right. you got the you got the worst worst case and the best worst case. And you say, okay, the best worst case is the situation doesn't get any worse. The worst worst case is we have more explosions and more radiation release. Mm-hmm. So you've got those goalposts, right? And then what was happening before I got arrived was that the ambassador was not familiar with nuclear power or nuclear terms or none of these disasters. So he really struggled with what does this data that I'm getting from the Japanese, can I trust the data? Can, what I'm getting from the Americans, can I trust that? What does all that mean? So any piece of data that came in would swing his, his decision-making because right. he would just told, you know, not, I'm not criticizing the ambassador. I'm just saying mm-hmm. that's what you would do. You just, you just say, okay, I've got a piece of data. What's that mean, mm-hmm. right, to me? What does that piece of data mean? And, it, and what I found when I got there was a lot of people were wildly swinging on decision-making. Mm-hmm. So I th- how do you settle that down? How do you settle the chaos down, mm-hmm. right? So what I came up with, I'm going to establish these goalposts. And the data points that come in, they're either between the goalposts or they're outside the goalpost, mm-hmm. right? If they're between the goalposts, I don't give these political people, they don't understand these terms, so I just tell them, the situation remains between the goalposts. Mm-hmm. That's all they need to know, right? It's not mm-hmm. getting worse. It's not getting better. It's, mm-hmm. it's right there. Mm-hmm. And then as data comes in outside the goalpost, right, then you do what I call ba- let it bake. You say, just let it sit there. I'm not going to run that up to the boss right. right away because I don't really know what it means. Right? Yeah, you until don't trust it get, yet. You don't trust it. Right. So until you get some meaning of that data point, then you don't want to take it up to the decision makers. Hmm. You do what I call let it bake. You just sit there and let it bake and see if it gets some friends. You know, <laughs> and if it gets friends, then you say, okay, now we start having a little a little trend here right. that this might be the actual situation. So that's a long story to kind of give how I try to reduce chaos without data. Chuck, I the idea of the chaos curve is very compelling. And the frustration of not really being able to have eyes on the situation must have been just, uh, I can't imagine. Right. How, practically speaking, how close could you guys get? This is 250, 250 kilometers uh, northeast of Tokyo. Right. And uh, how close could you actually get to the, to the nuclear site? Well, eventually we were in the buildings. But um, at the time, during the crisis, only uh, – well, they call them the Fukushima 50. There were mm-hmm. actually 65. But uh, the Fukushima 50, the, the operators, were the only people at the site. Mm. Uh, they were about a mile away in a uh, sheltered facility uh, to, to try to respond to the event. So, so you're far away. Mm-hmm. And the problem is you get a lot of pictures, satellite, thermal, right? right? And, and, and now... That brings a whole nother dimension. So it's sort it's even worse than what you were thinking, Bill, in terms of that now you're getting information from sources that you're not familiar with. Right. So you don't know what this means. You have this piece of information, whether it's a thermal image, but if you don't have anything to compare it to, right, right then you don't know what does this mean. I'm getting this data, I don't know what it means. Yeah, I you know, and correct me on these numbers, the right. quick research I was looking at, the meltdown 
gets up to 2,300 degrees Celsius, mm-hmm. over 4,000 Fahrenheit. Right, right. The heat stamp on that, you know, what right. equipment do we have that actually registers? Right. And I mean, That's everything's right. going to be thrown off by that. Right. When you look at the thermal images, everything's white. Everything's, right. uh, you can see there's white where there shouldn't be white. I know that. So what does that mean yeah. to me, right? It's, it's a, there's white above the reactor. Right. Why is there white above the reactor? Right. Meaning there's heat above the reactor. Why is it up there, mm-hmm. right? And uh, so then you know, well, I have a release point. I have heat escaping okay. from the top of the reactor. Chuck, I'm, I'm taken back to something you said a few minutes ago about getting a data point and being uh, not quite ready to, to run that up the ladder yet. And I'm, uh, there, there's sort of two quotes that are, that are dueling in my head, and one of them is uh, Deming uh, said, you know, without data, you're just another person with an opinion. So that one rings true. But right. then something we say at Velociteach all the time uh, is – Two points make a line, three points make a trend. And so, you know, just one data point is one data point. It's, it, right. you know, it could be an anomaly. It could be a bad reading from something. It that, could be right. an overreaction. Let me ask you a question. As you're there and you're starting to work through this, what, what did success look like to you? How would you define it? No further radiation releases. <laughs> okay. Right? Okay, yeah. The, the goal is as you're mm. in that goalpost, you're in that goalpost, and, and they propose – Let's say the Japanese government or the operator proposed, we want to try a different strategy. Well, if all our data is within the goalpost, why would we want to do, at this point, why would we want to take some other strategy unless we're certain it's going to move it to the best worst case? Hmm. So my philosophy was that we know they're putting water into the reactors with fire trucks at that point. After the, after the loss of all the installed systems, they connected up fire trucks with pumping water from the ocean into the reactors. So there's water going in, and the radiation coming out of the plant has stopped. As far as I'm concerned, that's stable, and for right now, that's what we want. So before you take any other further action, you want to make sure that that action's well thought out, because you don't want to disturb the status quo. We did know that there was not enough water going in the reactors. Mm -hmm. We did know that. The challenge was, if you push more water into the reactors, because of breaks in the building and because of leaks, highly radioactive material was headed for the ocean. Mm. Mm. So if you push more water in, that water is going to flow out to the ocean, and then you're going to have a significant release oh. of radiation out to the ocean. Yeah. The prime minister had decreed no, no releases to the ocean. Mm. So they had to minimize the water flow to keep from overflowing the other buildings that it was leaking to and going out to the ocean. Wow. Is that a common scenario, (laughs) guys, in in project management where where the the solution might actually make things worse? That's right. Mm. That's right. In reality, we we probably could have got those reactors cooled down much faster if you make the choice to release the radioactivity to the ocean. Because you made that decision, you put a constraint in. Right. You put a constraint in, that now is going to, the accident is going to last six months, mm. which it did until December 21st when it finally got them, the reactors, into cold shutdown. So you put these constraints on your project, and you know that the consequence is going to be this is going to make this project much longer. Mm. Every every project manager encounters some constraints, and sometimes they're known, and sometimes they're assumed, and sometimes you find out at the worst possible moment but they're there i mean in some ways it did help at least constrain the amount of planning you had to do i guess there there might have been some upside to it well 
there were several times when the when there were constraints uh, put on the plant operator by the national government, and most of those constraints that were put on actually complicated the accident. Wow, mm-hmm. they 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 made it much more challenging because if you think about it, social justice, protecting the environment, protecting people, will overrule technical justice. Right. So mm-hmm. that's what happened in this case. The, the social justice we don't want to release to the ocean overruled the technical justice of the technical people knowing what the right thing to do is to increase mm. from a technical point of view. So then the national government has to make a decision. Mm. Same thing with the evacuation before they vented. As you said, Andy, the reactor buildings, they heat up. They've got all this steam in them. You need to vent this off before right. it uh, breaks the containment buildings, mm-hmm. right? You need to vent this off. And the national government asked them to hold off on venting until the evacuation of the people occurred. And uh, that complicated, slowed down the, the recovery, slowed mm-hmm. down the, the, the mitigation, and uh, greatly complicated the accident. In fact, during that delay is when Unit 1 uh, exploded. Wow. How many people were being evacuated? Because, again, we have uh, loss of life of 16,000 or, right. or more from the tsunami, the earthquake, and then the tsunami. Right. So you already have compromised, you have compromised road systems. Oh, tremendously, you know, yes. Okay, I go out to my car yeah. to, to escape, and it's underwater. Uh, plus, there's right. no road. It's washed out. Right. Right. That must have slowed things down enormously. Plus, you had, what, what were the number of people, roughly, that were being evacuated? Well, they evacuated ninety to 100,000 people okay. from the area mm-hmm. and uh, immediately, immediate right. evacuation. So when, when I went in the first time in, uh, to, up, to this, up to the Fukushima prefecture, it, it's just remarkable. The staging area, they mm-hmm. had uh, commandeered a place called J Village, which is the international, the women's international soccer team practice facility. It's about 18 kilometers west of Fukushima Daiichi, the the accident uh, plant. Every inch of that was filled with military vehicles and Mm -hmm. government vehicles. And then that's that's also the point where there was a no-go zone after that from from J Village in 18 kilometers, no people. So you go up and you see just the chaos of all the people changing into protective clothing to go into the plant to do work um, and then to ride through that area and you see the earthquake damage the tsunami damage you see villages just wiped out gone mm. um, major crevices in the road I, you know I'd look down and you'd see a car down maybe a hundred feet into a crevice a truck you say what happened to that person right. that's in that thing actually cars literally stuck on the road where the road opened up in front of them as they were driving. Bridges, uh, liquefaction because of the earthquake, mm. wiping out. You see a bridge stand there with no entry, no ramps to it yeah. where the liquefaction wiped out. And meanwhile, Bill, you're trying to, you're trying to bring in a response right. to all this. You're trying to bring in equipment. You're trying mm-hmm. to, that we needed batteries very desperately, needed batteries since the emergency diesels were wiped out. And um, the batteries that we're trying to deliver were too heavy for helicopters, and you had to try to get those in there. The truck drivers were getting lost uh, in the mountains trying sure. to get equipment because they had to go different routes and no cell phone coverage. So mm-hmm. just to try to respond to the site, and that's why the Fukushima 50 were there for quite some time mm-hmm. on their own. It, I remember going in the first time to talk to Yoshida, the site superintendent, and he held up a bag of rice and a bottle of water. 
And he said, you know, for the last seven days, this is what I've had every day. Wow. And I've got to decide how much water to put in my rice to cook it and how much to drink. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is a first world country, mm-hmm. right? We're talking about a first world nation here. We're not talking about, mm-hmm. you know, a third world nation. This is a first world nation. You know, we couldn't even get supplies into the workers, to the 50, 65 guys that were there. Mm. You know, Chuck, in a lot of ways, this resembles almost a wartime situation. Uh, a war fighter a lot of right. times knows what technically he or she needs to do in order to, to take control of a situation. But there's political constraints. There are other constraints. Maybe there's news cameras. There's things that that, that you're not ready to do and maybe constraints you can't cross. So you're having to operate in a really constrained environment. I guess it was frustrating feeling like you knew a technical solution that you couldn't implement. That's right. And so you have logistical constraints. You have government constraints. Then that, and, and as you said, a war fighting, this was, it was on a war footing. People would talk about that. So this was definitely a war footing. If you think about it, this, is, this event was the great San Francisco earthquake, right. Hurricane Katrina, and more than three Three Mile Islands all in one place, all at the same time. That's breathtaking. If if you think about it, we didn't do so good on any of those, right, (laughs) in responding to any of those. Mm -hmm. And you have all of those happen at one time in one day, uh, and continuing Mm. buildings exploding for days afterwards. Uh, So mm. it's uh, with 90 to 100,000 people involved. Mm. So this was a massive undertaking Mm -hmm. uh, to to try to respond to this event. As a leader of that effort, how do you keep your team focused? I would think personally I would be overwhelmed at moments by the devastation. Right. You know, the, the uh, visuals that I have in my mind as you describe what you saw. How do, I, how do I keep my – how do you keep your composure and how do you continue to lead the team when uh, there's so much overwhelming devastation around you? Well, I, I focused on informing the White House and the ambassador and, and trying not to fuel – the chaos that was going on and trying to be reasoned and uh, be calm. There was a gentleman, Harold Denton, who was the uh, first responder. He essentially had my job at Three Mile Island. He was Jimmy Carter's representative at Three Mile Island. And I actually used him as a role model. I thought about Harold when I was, he was a Southern gentleman, slow speaking, very calm. He did a wonderful job at Three Mile and talking to the public and so I, you know, I used, I saw him as a role model. I said, I need to be like a lot like Harold when I get here, during, during that flight over, thinking about all the, th- all the organization in my head, and it was, you know, there's a mentor, there's a role model that I that I can use. So I, I used, I think I used him a lot. Uh, also, uh, Governor Thornburg from from uh, Three Mile Island, uh, he had taught me about facts. He was a prosecutor. Told me a lot, taught me a lot about facts, about challenging the facts, and more importantly, challenging the fact bringer. Uh-huh. I think you were talking about that, Andy, about you know people bringing opinions, and and as a as a prosecutor, and also I would say that uh, Ambassador Ruse in Japan, he also is uh, is an attorney, and just that logical, challenging, fact bringing. What's what's the fact you're bringing me? How do I know that it has credibility? So you challenge the fact and you challenge the fact bringer. And um, so I use those, I think, as role models. I made mistakes. There's no doubt about that. We, in our, in our zeal to have penetration into the organization, 
we we pushed hard to have engineer to engineer communications with uh, Tokyo Electric and uh, and the Japanese government. And what I found was that this disaster was so big that no one engineer or no group of engineers had the overall picture right. of the accident. So we got bogged down a little bit in details that we shouldn't have been bogged down in. And I learned that I, I should have made better use of the middle and senior managers in their company and in their government to get a better picture of, of the accident and what was going on. So that was a lesson. It took a few days for me to learn that lesson, that, that any one engineer just has a small picture right. of what's going on. And you can't, you can't put a bunch of those little pictures together and get the big picture in something as massive as this. And it's something that engineers don't always see their picture as a small picture. To That's them, right. it's the only picture. That's right. And we love engineer to engineer, right? Engineer, yep. Scientist to scientist. We love that. And as a leader, though, uh, that, can, that can really uh, limit your view of what's happening. You know, years ago, and it wasn't that many years ago, uh, Google tried very hard to flatten out their enterprise and they tried to do away with layers of management. And uh, people cheered this. They said there's no more bureaucracy. It'll be streamlined, and we're going to get rid of some of these project managers and other middle management. And what they found was it was almost impossible to get anything done. Things got, you know, so then they started Mm -hmm. looking at it a little more sanely and saying, okay, um, we're not going to be so flat anymore because uh, middle management, project managers, uh, all the way up to senior management, they all fill a role. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the role, hopefully, if you have your organization aligned right, uh, hopefully the role is that you start seeing uh, uh, bigger and bigger pictures as you go up the chain. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard somebody uh, recently uh, going, uh, going off and saying, I don't understand what a CEO does said, I really don't understand. And they were kind of Mm. making the point that CEOs weren't necessary, which is, again, fun and pop culture to look at it that way. But in a properly aligned organization, the CEO plays a very important function of coordinating everything and organizing everything. And that goes all the way down the chain, you know, so that they just have progressively granular responsibilities. Um, Chuck, I hope you'll have some time to stick around because uh, we'd love to continue this conversation sure. and uh, and talk through a few more things if you have time because uh, there's a lot of questions that are coming to mind just as a project manager here that I'd like to dig into. Absolutely. Before you go, though, Chuck, um, I know a lot of our listeners would love to be able to connect with you somehow. Is there a way they can do that? They can. Uh, literally, my company is Casto Group Consulting. I do a lot of independent safety uh, advice and consulting uh, for many different sectors. Great. And Andy and Bill, thank you for what has been so far a fascinating conversation. I look forward to the rest of it. We'll pick it up next time. We want to remind our listeners how to earn your free PDUs just for listening to this podcast. In fact, you've already earned professional development units toward your recertifications. To claim them, go to Velociteach.com and select Manage This Podcast from the top of the page. Click the button that says Claim PDUs and just click through the steps. That's it for us here on Manage This. We hope you'll tune back in on September 5th for our next podcast when we'll be talking again with Dr. Chuck Casto. In the meantime, you can visit us at Velociteach.com slash manage this to subscribe to this podcast 
to see a transcript of the show or to contact us and tweet us at manage underscore this if you have any questions about our podcasts or about project management certifications. We always love to hear from you. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, keep calm and manage this.